Chris Tire Information Whiskey, 2153 Zulu. Wind, 0605. 0606 Mike Juliet, this is Archer Radar Contact. Hazardous weather information from Minnesota available on flight service frequency. You've dialed in the Flying Midwest Podcast. Connecting aviators from across America's heartland. Sharing news, information, and events from around the region. Sit back, relax, and join our crew for some hangar talk as we discuss a wide variety of regional aviation topics. And now, from our home at the Anoka County Blaine Airport, our checklist is complete and we're ready for departure for another episode of the Flying Midwest Podcast. What is going on, everyone? Jim here with the Flying Midwest Podcast. So happy you're able to join us. On this episode, we bring you part two of our interview with Nicole Mitchell, meteorologist and former hurricane hunter. She'll talk to us about flying through dangerous storms and the valuable information they were able to provide. And as always, news, information, and events from around the region with some friendly hangar talk along the way. So strap in and let's take off into this episode of the Flying Midwest Podcast. Greetings, everyone. Jim here with the Flying Midwest Podcast, and I'm joined by my co-host, Trevor, from all the way down at Little Rock Air Force Base in Arkansas. Did I say that? <laughs> and Maddie, <laughs> our resident CFI co-host extraordinaire. Aww. So this is our 10th episode. We're hitting double digits. Wow. So I'm excited about it. Um, Gotta start somewhere, right? So jumping yeah. into double digits is well. We, say we did start at episode one, but now we're at episode ten. So I feel like we've now graduated. Yeah, that's right? ten whole episodes. Um, there is a lot of stuff that has been going on the last couple of weeks since our last episode. Um, before we dive into the actual news, let's talk about some of those things. So, podcast wise, are we going to talk about you going to Kansas, or is that a secret still? No, it's not a secret. I've posted about it and stuff. Okay. So some exciting news for our podcast family. Maddie is moving to yet another state in the Midwest, and we have confirmed it's in the Midwest, and it's the only way we're keeping you on the podcast, and you're moving down to Kansas for some instructing opportunities. I sure am. And yes, it is still in the Midwest, so I'm legal to be on this podcast. Excited about that. But yes, I'm going to the air capital of the world. I'm going to be moving down to Wichita, Kansas, in about probably in August. Yeah, so sorry, Minnesota. I'm I'm piecing out to go to slightly windier but less cold place. Well, good for you. I'm excited for you to go down and get that opportunity to do more instructing down there. Thank you. I'm really excited too. I'm excited to finally start my career in aviation. Get paid to fly. (laughs) What did you say, Trevor? To spread your wings. (laughs) <laughs> now if only the audience could see that i can only refer to that as like a hummingbird type of flapping um in a very excited manner so you i can tell that you're excited and i, I because this is a not an, a visual form of media i felt the need to paint the picture with my words that's okay i knew the audience couldn't see it but it was but it was something that to. needed it still needed to be shared 
yeah, it was performance art. It's not meant for everybody. <laughs> What's performance art when nobody sees it? That's like modern art right there. If a tree falls in the woods and no one's around to hear it, does a bear in the woods? That, that's how it goes, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, Jim, that's how it goes. Okay. Hey, guys, we did a vlog. Actually, we didn't. Jim did. That's true. I did. Isn't it it just vlog? Well, that's what it used to be, but it's it's pronounced vlog. Vlog, like vlog. Yes, vlog. Yes. I'm so freaking old. You, you are. Right. Okay. It's okay. Yeah, I am. We understand. There's a learning curve. It's all right. I'm sure you still spell email e dash mail. So that's not right. Give you a little grace. Actually, it is technically. (laughs) (laughs) No, I was serious. That's yeah. That okay. You guys are both old, but Trevor's well, older. I, I think I'm technically older by actual years on this planet. By... No, right. I think you are too, but old is like a state of being. I'm, <laughs> I'm just throwing be, you under the bus, Trevor. Nice, Trevor. No comment. So the other interesting news that's happened with our podcast group, Trevor is done with his seer training. Congratulations on that, Trevor. Sounds like quite the ordeal to go through that training in and of itself, just really challenging um, experience. And then you got back and got the COVID. Got the Rona. He's got the COVID. He's got the COVID. <laughs> You're going to no, kill him. No. Oh no. Please don't die, Trevor. I'm sorry. <laughs> so back to the, do you want to talk at all about Seer? Can you talk at all about Seer? It doesn't yeah. sound like a fun experience. That's all I have to say about that. It was not a fun experience. It was great. It was a great learning experience. I would never want to do oh, sure. it again, but I'm glad I have that experience. Yeah, That's for good. sure. Because but it's kind of ultimately what a lot of training is. You never want to be there, but you're prepared for when you have to be, basically. How about the winds around the Midwest the last couple of weeks? Holy cow. It's ridiculous. Oh, my God. I missed I... it. So what, what's going on? It's windy as hell. You didn't really it, miss it, it anything. Be windy. <laughs> no, no, it's windy in Texas too. I was just there. It's very windy there. Too. Well, Dallas is naturally windy, so that's true. I've seen windy here in the Midwest. This is a new low. It's Hi, I low. guess. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a new velocity. <laughs> it do be windy though. I just think it's not only just that, it's just the number of days consistently, at least up here, that it's been so windy. And I don't think it's just isolated to Minnesota. I've seen posts in other Facebook groups as we mine for content where everyone is complaining about how windy it is and no one's really flying. And frankly, that's yeah. what gave me a lot of time to work on that the vlog just because, well, that and the plane's down for annual. So that also makes it hard to fly it when it's down for annual. But um, yeah. It's torn apart. But I didn't feel bad about it being down because it's so windy. So yeah, um, I haven't been able to fly at all the past couple of weeks. I just find it somewhat interesting because we just talked to Nicole Mitchell about this last episode about the changing of the weather patterns in the springtime and how does mm-hmm. that jet stream is moving up. So come the winds and it's just been a lot this year. So right. hopefully it keeps trekking up and we don't have to worry about this. That would be really nice. I would love for the winds to calm down and the storms to stop being as annoying as they are because it's either one the other or both i there have been like a handful of like nice days yeah well soon enough 
real spring will arrive and we'll be able to actually get up and do some flying. Hopefully my plan will be out annual by then. I have a truck ride on the 16th, so I'm 39% done with my course. You better hurry up. I'm sorry, I can't change the weather. Yes. So we do have some official resolution on the Trevor Jacobs issue, as we have been following that for a while. Um, As the the Trevor Jacobs, not Trevor Norman of this podcast. Correct. Other Trevor, not the one we know and love. This dude, I've never met. So the FAA has finally come out on their uh, verdict for the Trevor Jacobs case. They have actually revoked his private pilot certificate. They said it was indeed on purpose. The FAA was not, did not sugarcoat what they said. They labeled it as careless and reckless and ordered him to surrender his private pilot certificate effective immediately. Trevor Jacob himself said to ABC News that he did not jump out of his plane for views because it wasn't his plane. (laughs) So what he said was technically correct, I suppose. Yeah, the FAA is not thrilled about this. Um, They note that he didn't do anything to try to restart or try to land safely, as is part of all of our training as private pilots. Uh, the FAA also said if that if he does not surrender his pilot certificate, he will be subject to a fine of $1,644 per day until it is surrendered. Oh, per day. Oh, I missed per that part. Per day. $1,644 per day. That's impressive. I did see somewhere on a source that Trevor Jacobs was apparently not aware of this verdict, which means that he may have some fines to pay. But that is the official resolution as of now. If we have any more updates, we will definitely let you all know, although the internet is fast and forever, so you'll probably know before we do, but as we are an official podcast, we have to talk about it. Well, fortunately, that's not the only revocation that's coming down the pike. Oh, no. Do tell, Trevor. Yeah, you seem busting at the seams to tell us, please. Well, no, you know what I was referring to, Maddie. Yes, but the people on the podcast, you have to, like, save sentences. Red Bull gives you wings until it doesn't. <laughs> until you crash an airplane. Until you get into flat spin. After <clears throat> being denied. So it was an intentional waiver. crash. It got into a flat spin and couldn't be recovered even if he had gotten in the aircraft. However, so, <clears throat> however, still denied by the FAA. That is going to be a problem, I think. And I think the here's the hard part for me. And we've talked off the podcast about this in our little chats, but I wasn't a fan of this whole concept to begin with. I thought it was stupid. I thought it was foolish. I grew on it a little bit just in the fact when I started seeing how much more they put into it as far as the research, the science to try to do this safely. I, I was kind of impressed by just the work they put into it. I still thought it was stupid, but um, they were trying to do it safely. But I went way back on the other side of the needle as soon as I heard about the denial by the FAA and then proceeding to do it anyways. Um, I have a problem with that. Not just because FAA and they said so, but just, I mean, they just told you, you're right on the decision on the Trevor Jacob thing and you do it anyways. I just, I'm going to be really curious to see how the FAA handles this one. I am of the mind that it was ridiculous. I think on the FAA's part to deny them because genuinely all they had to do was say yes and put up a TFR. 
So that means, because they were, the area that they were in the desert, from what I've seen, is a popular drops drop zone and uh, one that a lot of like, they use for movies and things that it's empty. There's no harm to anybody even possible. It's out in the middle of nowhere. Um, also, they did their research. They did the testing. They did, um, you know, they put in the legwork to make this as reasonably safe as possible. Um, and of course, with you know, Red Bull is always like the pioneer of um, sponsoring the things that are a little bit outside of the um, the envelope, if you will. So, you know, if you've ever been to Oshkosh, you've seen the helicopter that can do full aerobat- aerobatics and things like that. Um, and I think that, unfortunately, I think the FAA was, there was no reason for them to say no. And so them saying no was just kind of them, you know, m- either making a hissy fit or doing something because they they went through the proper channels. They did ask um, and everything, unlike Trevor Jacobs, who crashed a plane on purpose, which is well, so dumb. And I think that plays into it too. And absolute speculation. I have nothing to back this up. I, I almost wonder how much of that decision came as a result, or at least in consideration of what they were doing with Trevor Jacob. Because in one hand, you've got granted, not planned as far as the extent that Red Bull guys did, but you got a guy who abandons his aircraft, it crashes. And you revoke him. And then a handful of days or within a week later, you got these guys who are going to do this stunt. Mm-hmm. They seem like experienced pilots. So I'm surprised. Well, that... they're both commercially rated as far as mm-hmm. I've read. But yeah, I mean, it's just, I, I just wonder how much of that played into their decision to deny. And again, I could be absolutely off base and completely speculating here, but it just, it made me wonder. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to, I'm going to go on a limb here. What they were actually denied a waiver for was 91105, which is for during takeoff, during takeoff and landing, and while en route, each required flight member shall one be at the crew member station unless absent and abs- absence is necessary to perform duties in connection with the operation of the aircraft or in connection with physiological needs, and B, keep the safety belt fastened while at the crew member station. So that's what they were originally denied. Which doesn't make any sense because they weren't taking off or landing. They had their seatbelts on. They took them off. Or in route. Oh, or in route. But in route. But were they were they in were they technically in route? Were they descending or were they something? Yeah. This I feel they were descending. So that's such a silly little rule to like say no, because it's a stunt. Of course they're, you know, it's not going to follow regulations in one way or another. It's not like right. they're trying to change anything. They're just like, in order to do this stunt, we need to, you know, break this far. Can we do that? And them saying no, I mean, it's a stunt. <laughs> it's not like but, they're doing something willfully negligent. You know, I guess it is just for funsies, you could say. But I mean, well, I'm, I'm gonna, it's an interesting I'm, idea, I'm, I think. I'm going to be interested to see what the lawyer has to say about it because if you were to go to the letter of this Mm -hmm. they're not straight and level flight obviously they're not takeoff they're not landing Mm -hmm. so per lawyer speak they could make an argument that 91105 did not apply yeah that's true but again i'm not a fan of it i wasn't a fan of of it from the from the very get-go why why leave one air? I mean, why not have a pilot flying the airplane 
as a required crew member in both those airplanes and just have guys swap between the airplanes. But that doesn't, that defeats it defeats the, yeah, it completely defeats the purpose of it. The purpose of a stunt is it's kind of dangerous, but mainly for the people performing the stunt. So they're going into it, knowing what the risk is. They're trying to do something really out of the box. And this is, I mean, stunts are not new. Like we, <laughs> we've seen stunts before. I, I can't think of anything off the top of my head, but the fact that they went, try to go through the proper channels, I feel like, you know, that's, that was very good of them. You know, they were doing their, their thing. I feel like if they, like, as you said, coming right behind the Trevor Jacob ruling, they definitely knew about that. They definitely knew about the, you know, the FAA saying, no, they've got to have something up their sleeve to have themselves covered because otherwise, why would you risk? Why would two people who love to fly and have this dream risk everything to do this stunt unless they wanted this this to be their last hurrah that doesn't quite make sense to me so yeah i'm with trevor and seeing what in the world is going to happen next i'm curious you're not really with me though no but you wanted to, you wanted to see what was like going to happen legally i'm curious right. to see what their lawyer has to say too i'm just on the other i just have the opposite opinion i think stunts are awesome they did the planning. They did the modifications as best as they could. They practiced, you know, they did everything they could to make sure this was successful. Unfortunately, they couldn't, they couldn't prepare for this. And I, I think speculation is because of the the weight and balance. It was just, um, you know, because yeah, they had a safety pilot all the other times. Um, so that yep. weight made, put it into a flat spin, which, you know, that can happen. I mean, it doesn't normally, cause usually you don't exit the aircraft, but um well, even that they had they had installed a parachute system in the mm-hmm. aircraft. At, granted, it, the aircraft was still destroyed. Right. They had still taken some precautions. I mean, mm-hmm. so like I said at first, I was on wildly on the side of this is absolutely stupid. This is going to get screwed up. They're going to destroy an airplane for no reason. Then I started doing a little bit more of the research into what they were actually mm-hmm. doing, um, and it, it was kind of interesting. But yeah, it, it the whole just the Trevor Jacob thing, then the FAA saying no, and then we're going to do it anyway, just kind of left a bad taste in my mouth. Yeah. Just, I, I'm curious to see what happens to, I think that maybe there is a possibility that there's some other explanation here that isn't being reported by the media. I know that's weird, but it happens sometimes. So yeah, we'll, we'll sit yes. tight and we'll see what they have to say at the end of the day. Maybe there is some sort of explanation, but we will also keep you updated on those news as well. From the Herald review in Grand Rapids, Minnesota, a warning from experts in wildfire management on UAS activity around wildfires. Uh, This time of year, there is an increased risk for wildfires due to snow-free grasses and marsh areas starting to dry up, high winds, things of that nature. Um, What occurs is you have a UAS that gets into that airspace um, and they are restricted from being within five miles of a wildland fire, um, even if there's not a TFR specifically in place. Firefighting and aviation management experts say that's not uncommon during wildfires for three or more aircraft to have to share that same low-level airspace that drones would typically fly in. The pilots do need to stay focused to extinguish those flames. One incursion into the rapidly moving wildfire environment is too many. Be mindful if you're a drone operator. Please stay away from wildfires. Let the people who are fighting them do their job. Yeah, and as I've in my professional life talked with public safety and firefighting professionals that deal with these types of fires. It is something that they keep an eye out for and they have to be mindful for. There's whether it be an amateur who's out there just trying to get some cool video of a a large fire or even sometimes public safety drone operators, they get into that airspace um, that could shut down the entire 
operation of that wildfire suppression just because they can't get into that airspace. They're not going to risk it. Even with public safety unmanned aerial system operations, there is a lot of careful communication between those different entities, but they do keep an eye out for any of those incursions to maintain the safety of that entire environment. So yeah, like you said, I mean, even if you're a general aviation pilot and you see a large fire, just stay away from it for a plethora of reasons, but just let those people get in there and do their jobs. And hopefully that will help protect life and property. All right. Are you guys ready for Oshkosh? I know I'm ready for Oshkosh, but you know who's not ready for Oshkosh? The EAA. Starting on April 30th, the EAA is looking to hire as many as 700 people for temporary positions in various areas around AirVenture. AirVenture will be held from July 25th to July 31st. So um, positions that they're looking to fill include um, ones in retail, security, parking, camper registration, facilities, and actually a couple bartenders it looks like they're looking for. So in order to apply um, for retail, you must be at least 14. Security, you must be at least 16 years old and you must be 18 years old for all other positions. Um, They encourage people to apply online before all the hiring events. They have a few. If you do apply, you will have to interview on site. So to go apply, the website is eaa.org forward slash hiring 22. So if you're interested in that, which if you want a temporary position for just a week, definitely go look at that. Oshkosh is a lot of fun. I love it. I wish I could, I wish I could work, but um, they definitely need people. So if you love aviation, want to be really part of it, definitely go to that website and go interview. So I'm going to take this moment real quick and just if everyone else who, who listens to the podcast wants to just like chill for a minute or you know, check out one of those other cool aviation podcasts. That's fine. Um, this is, I just got to talk to my dad real quick. Hey dad, we were talking about this about a week ago that it'd be cool to work at AirVenture. So I'm going to include in the show notes, um, not for everybody else, for just for you. I'm going to include the show notes, the link so that you can go in there and find all the different times that you can go apply and do this application stuff. So I'm looking out for you. So, um, all right, I'm done talking to my old man. So um, we're back to talking to everybody else. So turn off um, Aviator Cast and start listening to us again. I wanted to make sure that he got that very special message. And if anybody else takes anything away from that, that's fine. But that was specifically for him <laughs> and not necessarily for you. But if you also... want to take that guidance, go for it. Uh... <laughs> I want to hear about Kansas. Okay, Trevor. I do. You want to hear about Kansas from the Wichita Eagle? Bombardier names Wichita as the new U.S. headquarters for their work on defense. Now, Bombardier, for those of you that don't know, it's a... Um, a Canadian-owned company, aerospace manufacturer. You probably heard of uh, Learjet or Canadair, you know, CRJs. They come under the umbrella of Bombardier. Now, Bombardier, they're looking for some sort of government growth where they're providing some aircraft. I think it's the Challenger, if I'm not mistaken, to the, uh, no, I'm sorry, it's the Global 6000 aircraft as part of their defense arm going to the uh, United States Air Force in support of Battlefield Operation, Battlefield Airborne Communications Node, uh, Bakken program. I heard it pronounced Bacon, but you can continue. Bacon. Okay, Bacon. <laughs> the Bacon program. Bacon. Um, basically, this gives the, uh, the, the Air Force a high-altitude, long-endurance aircraft that would be in service for over 10 years. Um, they would be serviced and upgraded within Wichita, so within the United States. Bombardier Defense, they're willing to continue their leverage uh, which does highly reputable expertise to provide in-service support and upgrades to the USAF's expanding back and fleet, Bacon fleet, underscoring Bombardier's status as a key U.S. aerospace employer. Um, and that's that's quoted from the uh, from the release. Now, looking at the 
the whole thing, it's actually kind of an interesting concept because the United States is actually divesting from some of their communications aircraft and their and their electronic warfare aircraft. So we were always wondering what was going to come of, of all these uh, niches that, that would need to be filled. And it looks like the Bacon Project is going to be one of them. I don't even care if that's really what it's called. I think that's what we need to call it. The Bacon? Yeah, the Bacon the Program. Bacon Program. Sounds highly sophisticated and also tasty. And since I don't work for the United States Air Force anymore, I feel like I'm free to say this, but um, U.S. Air Force, if you're not calling this the Bacon Program, I am really disappointed. <laughs> and I think you should revisit your, your plans. The Ohio State Highway Patrol is going to be employing new technology to catch dangerous drivers. It's not a new concept for law enforcement to use aircraft to monitor speed and dangerous driving conduct, but the Ohio State Highway Patrol is going to be employing new technology within their aircraft that will equip their aircraft with cameras, mapping systems, GPS, and vehicle speed measurement systems. So essentially, it's going to be a two-person crew. You're going to have your pilot and your tactical flight officer. Your pilot's going to maintain an orbit over a specific area, um, and they're going to be looking for erratic driving behavior, whether it be high speeds, aggressive driving, passing on shoulders, things like that. And then your tactical flight officer will be looking for that, identify that vehicle, and then use this technology to help enforce those um, speed zones. I don't know all of the science behind it, but there are certain things where they're going to be able to take the latitude and longitude of that vehicle as the camera moves and then do kind of like a point A, point B type of reference to calculate what that speed is. Now, again, I'm not going to pretend for a second to completely understand the math and the computer technology that's going to go behind that. But, but obviously it's going to be something that they will have tested, calibrated, ensured that it is an accurate measurement of speed. Now, as I mentioned earlier, that's not a new concept for aircraft to monitor speed by radar or other means. Um, many times you'll see marked zones within highway zones, um, and they can use that to time out speeds based on stopwatches, things like that, to calculate your speed from one mark to the next within a certain speed zone on a highway. So um, I know that Minnesota is also doing an increased enforcement by air, um, just because there has been such an increase in um, fatal accidents is what really drives this. Not necessarily people just driving like knuckleheads, but the whole goal is to decrease traffic fatalities that have been steadily increasing, not just in Ohio, but in Minnesota and other states around the country. So it is always interesting to see how law enforcement and public safety and aviation can, can mix together and hopefully be of a betterment to the community. All right, sticking along with the theme of Ohio, uh, Western Michigan University student uh, practiced his flying skills with a paper airplane to set a new national record. Now, Evan Cooper, a junior, had folded a piece of you know, paper airplane, flew through the air, did some miraculous things for 14.06 seconds um, at the Red Bull Paper Wings National Finals. And this happened back on April 4th. Cooper, who has the goal of becoming a commercial pilot, is headed to Austria for the world final in May. Cooper won for category of time. A student uh, from the University of Illinois won first place for distance over 45 yards. And the good news out of all this is there's going to be a Red Bull competitive type of thing where you hopefully don't crash that many aircraft. Too soon? Too soon. On their paper airplanes, they're going to crash them. So, well, keep keep up the great work, Red Bull. This podcast not sponsored by Rebel. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Oh, do we have some events? No. All pancakes. <laughs> so, question for you. 
all I found was pancake breakfast everywhere. It's pancake breakfast season, people. And they're Okay, everywhere. I have a suggestion. I think that, Jim, once your plane's out of annual, we should just go um, pancake hop. Oh, yeah. <laughs> just yeah. go to all the pancake breakfasts. I think that would be fun. That's a lot, That's of, a lot pancakes. of pancakes. Are you game? My stomach hurts. I already feel just thinking you about are weak. it. I, I feel a little. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> so here's what we'll do in prep. While my aircraft is an annual, I'm going to just have my son make me pancakes every day. And I'm going to just, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pregame this a little bit and just build up my tolerance to pancake breakfast so that we can really do this right and just do the round robin of pancake breakfast around the Midwest. I'm so ready for this. All right, yeah. here is the plethora of pancake breakfasts in the Midwest in the next couple months. So on the 7th that of we know May, uh, chapter 22 of the EAA has one from 7 a.m. to 11 a.m. at Cottonwood Airport, which is one Charlie 8. Also on May 7th, 6 a.m. to 10 a.m. at the Barstow Airport in Mid-Atlanta, Michigan, EAA chapter 1093 is also hosting a pancake breakfast, $7 for adults. Kids three to 12 are three. They'll also have aircraft on static display and pancakes. <laughs> Which is, you know, an important part of a pancake breakfast. <sighs> also Saturday, May 7th, 7 a.m. to 3 p.m. Pancake breakfast and fly-in and car show. EAA chapter 317 at uh, Jamestown, North Dakota. Kilo Juliet Mike Sierra. That will benefit the local Civil Air Patrol chapter and should be about eight hours in duration for their fly-in car show. And they'll also have some vendors. Cool. All right, moving on to the 8th. EAA chapter 1414 has one from 7 to 11 a.m. There's a Young Eagles rally at from 8 to 12 and it is at Poplar Grove Airport, which is Charlie 7-7. Now, I know this one doesn't really fit into the traditional pancake theme, but it's the date is going to fit in the middle okay. of this. So let's talk about the Flyin' Drive-In Biscuits and Gravy Breakfast, sponsored by EAA Chapter 832 at the Canton Ingersoll Airport, Kilo Charlie Tango Kilo. That's May 14th from 7 a.m. to 11 a.m. Adults are $8. Children 10 and under are 5. They'll give certificates for the oldest and the youngest pilot. And for the youngest pilot, you must have a student certificate as well as for the furthest distance flown, the best antique, best home built, and the best warbird. Sunday, May 15th at the Broodhead Airport, Charlie 37 in Broodhead, Wisconsin, they will have a fly-in drive-in breakfast with all-you-can-eat pancakes. $8 for adults, $5 for kids 10 and under. That event will go from 7 a.m. till noon. There'll also be a Young Eagles rally from 9 a.m. to noon and registration will be required at events 431 at EAA431.org. So those are all the pancake breakfasts that we know about today. I'm sure there's gonna be more that haven't been advertised nearly to this level of professionalism, but for them, best of luck in your <coughs> pancake breakfast. So for this episode, we are going to revisit our interview from last time. Nicole Mitchell, former meteorologist from KSTP in Minnesota, spent a good deal of time as a Air Force reservist with the Hurricane Hunters. As you learned last time in our episode, she's currently a lieutenant colonel with a air guard unit as a weather officer, uh, but she spent a lot of time with those hurricane hunters and had a lot of stories to share with us. So we decided to make an episode just of that. If you haven't listened to the other episode and gotten to know Nicole a little bit more, 
listen to this whole one first, and then you can go back and then you can listen to that other episode. She'll give you a nice introduction. She'll talk about some spring and summertime weather, and you'll be all the more informed with her wealth of knowledge on weather. So without further ado, the second half of our interview with Nicole Mitchell. I don't know. I think that's one of the coolest things is, is being on a hurricane hunter. Why would you're just on a C-130? It's so most of the time it's fine. The um, inside a hurricane flight, usually we try and be on there for about six hours so that you could do um, uh, two full passes through each quadrant. Um, so two full expat patterns from through the center and, and to each side. And, and it takes us six hours because you're going out over hundred miles on each leg and then coming in from a different direction. Uh, the actual going through the eyewall part of that, you know, is maybe 10 or 20 minutes of, of getting bounced around usually. And then the eye and it's quiet and then out the other side. And then you do this whole other pass. Now, some have thunderstorms throughout um, but you know, usually it's the eye wall that would be the worst. I only had a couple flights ever where it was just like the whole six hours where you were like getting bounced around. And again, then you're in a C-130, there's a ton of room in there. Mm-hmm. So if it's, if you're bouncing around in theory, you should be strapped in. Um, no one's, I mean, we're adults. No one's going to make you do it. I, a lot of times wasn't always, I, I'd, I'd be <laughs> hanging on. We had a, I had a handle on my workstation. So I'd, because I, I also like to look out the window a lot and there wasn't a good way to be strapped in with my window, maybe mm-hmm. two feet away, which sounds close. But if I was strapped in, I wouldn't have been able to, you know, be looking out the window as much as I like to, to look at, um, you can look at the waves and, t- and tell what the winds are. So I, I like to see the waves when I could and, and see the, the sky and anything else I could see. So. Interesting. I was always strapped in. I remember watching the, I think it's the national, was the national weather service, whoever put out that informational, the long informational video on the hurricane hunters. So like going through all the quadrants and like making sure that you hit everything and get all your readings and stuff. I think that stuff is so cool. It was, I loved it. Um, I, again, I, even as I moved farther and farther away, I, I kept going back and um, doing that job and had a lot of really fascinating experiences, but to, to Trevor's point, I have an iron stomach. I don't, you know, I don't get sick. If I get knocked around, have seen some things that would probably scare normal people. Um, you know, uh, but I like a little adventure. So <laughs> definitely yeah. a little bit of adventure. Yeah. Just a little. So how did you first get involved with the hurricane hunters? I, I know you mentioned that you were kind of doing some transitioning, with different you know news stations around the country but how does that process go where you get involved with a group like that so i'd been in the guard for many years and um was also moving for my civilian job in television it's really hard to come by weather officers for the most part uh, so most places are kind of short-staffed uh, i had transitioned to a job and moved to an area where they happen to not be short-staffed and so i was going to have to commute um to whatever guard unit I was going to be with or stay with or, or whatever. And it was going to be a long commute. And I thought to myself, you know, if I'm going to do a long commute, why not do something that I really, really have wanted to try and want to do. And I, the weather school for the military is at Keesler air force base. And so when I had gone back for just a short course, I knew the hurricane hunters were there and there had been a, a time or just on a training flight, I'd gotten to fly with them and found it interesting. Um, they don't generally take 
people on missions for obvious reasons for safety purposes. Um, so I was like, you know, if I'm going to commute, let me see what they have open. And they happened to have an opening at the time. And I went and interviewed and I got it. So again, which is, uh, was lucky for me. I, I happen to have a good resume as well, but there's only 20 people in the air force that do that job. So, and I got one of them. And so I was working in Oklahoma at the time and driving, um, to Mississippi for all the initial training and, and wow. so on. And then I eventually got picked up during that time at the weather channel. So by the time I finally got through all the training to be in the hurricane hunters, um, because it's also an air crew job. So you have to go through the survive, the land survival school, water survival school, um, we also do winter storms. So learning all the equipment and all the air crew stuff, it, you know, it takes a couple of years to go through that process. So by then I was in Atlanta, which is only a six hour commute, which was better than uh, where I'd started off in Oklahoma. I think it was 11 or 12 hours Ooh. of a drive. So it was manageable. So I'd go on the weekends um, and then extra in storm season and loved it. I flew into my check ride was actually Hurricane Katrina and I've gotten oh. to do a lot of other impressive storms, a few cat fives, a little bit of everything over the years. Wow. That's really something. That's so cool. So when you're flying, when you go with them, um, what is your role? What is like the, the weather officer's role in the air while you're, you're going flying either to these storms in these storms? And do you have any roles on the ground as well? So in an actual storm flight, the weather officer is considered the mission director because we're going to be the ones working with the National Hurricane Center to kind of bring to life what they want. So you go into storms, anything from what's called an invest, which is in a kind of a suspect area, but it might not actually be a closed low pressure circulation. Um, and then you're going in to see if you can find that circulation, to see if you can find the winds all the way around um, so that they can make it a tropical depression or a tropical storm, depending on the wind speed. Um, so you can get tasked anything from that up through tropical storms up through a cat five. So if it is already a developed storm, they'll give you coordinates. Um, what we found is though, even though they're satellites, um, unless there's a defined eye, which a lot of storms don't have at the kind of mid-levels, there have been times where they'll look on a, a satellite and think they see the kind of rotation center, the vortex center, and the coordinates can be 60 miles off. So our biggest part of the job is what's called the fix, which is using the winds to steer yourself in and find that exact place where the circulation, you know, that, that low pressure center where you can see that you can mark those coordinates because those coordinates are what's going to go in all the models. So if the plane hadn't found that center and let's say they were just interpreting it off the satellite and it was one of those times where it was 60 miles off, imagine how far off as you're, you know, giving your forecast for this, um, the cone, so to speak, days and days out, if your initiation point is already wrong, what the level of error is going to be as you continue to extrapolate that out. So that's the biggest part of the job is just fixing the center of the storm. And then um, once you're there, taking the pressure reading so that they have an accurate, you know, how intense is this storm right now? 
Um, and then all the other things that you can add, bring to the table that help with the model data, which is as you're doing the cross section through the storm, seeing how far out it is, um, different quadrants can have, they're, they're not um, completely, you know, perfectly cylindrical, um, they, they might tilt into the atmosphere. One side is going to be more intense than the other side. The wind field's going to be different on one side or the other. You know, they're, they're not like mirror images on each side. So that's part of what you're doing is just finding out, you know, where are the strongest winds within this wind field? How far out does it go? Because storms can be different sizes. So you can have like a little buzzsaw storm. Charlie, for example, in 2004 was one of those. It was a Cat 4 but it was just this little buzzsaw and just carved out this little path of destruction. Um, whereas you can have a Katrina, which hit as a cat three, um, but it had welled up so much water because it was big or actually Sandy is an even better um, uh, example of that because the tropical force winds, I think at one point were almost a thousand miles across. Um, and when it hit land, it wasn't even a hurricane anymore, but because it had that large wind field, it had just welled up a massive wall of water. So part of our job is, is not only seeing like where the storm is and how intense it is, but how big it is. Cause a lot of people don't always look at the, how big like they should. So we're trying to get that data too. Well, which is, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting because when you, when you do the forecast, especially when the, when you go to the, uh, the national weather service and you got the national hurricane center um, and you're looking at, okay, here's, here's, uh, you know, the color coding, right. Color coding the winds. You have the core winds being, you know, this is what a hurricane cat five looks like versus the, the, the outside winds, you know, feeding into that. And one of the, one of the things I do on the, on the, on the civilian side is, is disaster response. We do a lot of hurricane stuff. So when you had, the, the three hurricanes, Harvey, Maria, and Irma back in 2017, um, you know, some pretty massive storms. People weren't getting out of the way of, of the damaging winds. They were just trying to get out of the eye of it. It's like, there's still yeah. more, there's still more damage. There's more risk there. That's people aren't really understanding. And it. it's just really mind boggling that, yeah, you're going to focus all this effort on where the storm is going to be, where the, where the eye is going to hit, but you've got so much more path of destruction that's outside of the core. Yep. Especially with, you know, those big storms. And, and then there's even a variance, um, different, different areas of the coastline have different, um, shelves underneath the water. So some places are, are more susceptible to storm surge than others. It, there's just a lot of variables. And unfortunately, people tend to have short memories. So after 2005, which was the year of Katrina and Wilma and Rita, and, you know, the, when we went into the Greek alphabet for that first time, um, they had surveyed people and asked about readiness. And the 2006 survey was like very ready. And then um, 2006 was a quieter year. And the same su survey in 2007, people were already like, oh, you know, and the readiness had already gone down a lot because just in that short period of time, busy season, okay, we're ready, not a busy season. Oh, this isn't a big deal. Like, yeah, unfortunately people just, I don't know, something about human nature. Um, I think you hit the nail right on the head with that. 
Very much so. It's short-term memory loss. It's like, okay, this, okay. You have these bad memories of what happens like right now and maybe two weeks later, then, you know, a month later, then, then six months later, then eventually you're going to be like, yeah, that wasn't so bad. It's like, do you remember the time that you, it's like, people don't remember the bad times. They remember the, you know, the, the times that, that, you know, how shall I say, um, they rise to the occasion. They, they kind of remember the rise to the occasion at their very pinnacle, but they don't, they don't see the background of, of the buildup. You know what I mean? Well, and, and they also get a little overconfident, I think, because so for example, um, I'm, I'm pretty intimately familiar with Katrina because it also hit our base. So mm-hmm. not only did I fly it, but it, it impacted the base and, and the unit had to move for a while. And so I saw the recovery and I saw what it did to some of my colleagues, even, even losing their homes. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it's just like Tyndall Air Force Base a couple of years yeah. ago. Yeah. Um, but there had been a previous hurricane that had hit that area, Camille. And I want to say it was in the late 60s. I, I think 69, don't quote me on that. But it had been such a, a massive hurricane that basically the lore in the area was, well, nothing would ever be as bad as Camille. And they had Camille's water line. And so the, the belief was, it, you know, if the water hadn't gotten to you and Camille, it will blah, 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 blah. And a lot of people just were like, okay, I, I've been around forever. I made it through this one. In fact, one of our pilots ended up in Katrina in a tree. Um, the water came up through their house. I think they floated out of a window on a mattress, um, but their family had made it through Camille. So they were like, ah, we did this before. It's fine. And then they ended up, you know, spending a hurricane in a tree. Um, so I think not only is it complacency, but it's also a um, overconfidence that, oh, well, I made it through that one and that one was really bad. So, you know, you forget that that wasn't, it wasn't really fun to make it through that one, just that you made it. And so surely I'll make it again. Invulnerability. There we go. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. We have in aviation, we have our hazardous attitudes. And I think it is actually pretty good for life to like making decisions and seeing how people are on a regular basis. I'm not sure if you're familiar, but one of them is invulnerability. And that's the attitude of it can't happen to me. You know, it's, and with kind of those kinds of things, it happens a lot. Like people have that attitude and that's when, you know, they aren't prepared and then they get stuck in a tree. Um, Yeah. Keeping in mind with disasters, especially, I think there's some element too of like, I don't need to be prepared because like I'm too cool for it, which is, it sounds silly, but I feel like a lot of people do that. It's why people don't wear helmets or seatbelts or what have you, because it's not cool. It's not cool to be that person, to be like annoyingly prepared. So you talked about these different um, aspects of um, how the flights go into getting this data in a hurricane. Are you able to talk about um, specifically what the weather officer is doing back there while this is going on or how that data is actually collected? Yeah. So um, the, so the crew on a hurricane hunter is a minimum of five people. It's two pilots one navigator, weather officer, and a load master. Um, So as I mentioned earlier, the weather officer is considered the mission director. You'll talk directly to the National Hurricane Center, see what what they want you to accomplish for that flight. 
Um, usually you'll work with the navigator to figure out how you're going to get yourself there because since you're doing these cross patterns and usually you do two sets of them, it's going to determine like what side you come out on. So you'll kind of plan how, you, how you're going to enter the storm to usually set yourself up with a favorable exit location after you've done all of your passes to get you where you need to go. Um, so, so for example, if you're leaving from Biloxi, but you're hitting the storm on the way to the base in St. Croix because you're going to be flying stuff in the Caribbean. It's just too far away to keep flying from Biloxi. And you have to kind of figure out your exit point. So that's what you'd be doing before the storm itself. Um, you know, and then going over that with the crew and then briefing the crew on, you know, uh, this is the plan. It's an invest. We're going to fly at low level or it's a tropical storm. We're going to fly it on the you know, 850 millibar, which is, you know, about 5,000 feet. Um, or it's, this is a very developed storm. We're going to fly it at 700 millibars, about 10,000 feet. Um, so you're doing all that planning ahead of time and, and kind of making sure the crew is all okay with the plan and, and you know, on target. Um, on the way to the storm, you're just taking general observations, which we do even on a training flight, it can go into some of the modeling data, not even the hurricane modeling data, but just generally modeling data if we don't happen to be by a storm. But if we're flying into it from an area that the storm might eventually pass, it could be really helpful because that might be some of the, um, like the, the weather field that that storm's eventually gonna go into. So then you might even drop a couple of the sawns so the plane itself is taking data at a um, horizontal level, and then the sons would give a vertical level. So especially if the storm might be headed that way, you might get a little bit more data because, you know, um, just to see the environment the storm's headed into. But then once you get into the storm itself, the navigators on the Hurricane Hunter flights um, do a little more than normal navigators. In fact, on the C-130J, normally you don't have navigators anymore, but because the weather officer is so busy, they help watch the radar for, for things and, and help with the, the plotting and stuff. Um, during the storm environment itself, the weather officer will kind of mark that point that's about 100 miles out. And then with the navigator, start heading toward the center and then really be following the winds. Um, if you start seeing that the coordinates you were given were different, what the winds are showing you, then, then you'll start saying, you know, I need us to turn 10 degrees left or right. Um, and so you kind of start steering and following the winds until you, if there's an eye wall, get through the eye wall, get to the eye or the center um, and find that actual place where the winds flip so that you've gotten the center of the storm you mark it, you tell the navigator, mark it. If you're at, um, you don't do it at low level because you're just already kind of right there. But as long as you're at 800 millibar, 850 millibars or higher, that 5,000 or higher, you release a sound. The loadmaster helps do that. And they actually have some, some basic meteorology so that they can QC the sound before they send it over to us. And then we QC it as well, um, quality control it. And, um, yeah, so we're pretty busy in the center of a system, just kind of making sure we've got that steering right and coordinating the plane and basically telling the plane where to go. Um, and then 
And then you'll usually hand it back over to the navigator after that, and they'll steer you back, you know, kind of get you back on track if you really steered around to find that center um, so that you can go out the coordinate at the right angle if you're not at that right angle anymore. Um, because the weather officer during that period of time, especially if you're high enough that you've had sons, usually have a sawn in the eye wall going in, the center sawn, the sawn in the eye wall going out. So you're trying to process all of those. You take the um, a special message right in the eye of the storm and you've got data to fill into that. If there's an eye wall, you're looking at the shape, you're measuring the size, you know, is it 20 miles across? Um, is it open on the Southwest corner? You know, you're giving all this extra information to the hurricane center and the special message. So you're trying to get all of that stuff out um, plus, you know, on the way in steering the plane or telling them how to steer the plane um, and occasionally looking out the window and making sure that, you know, watching the winds at the surface and making sure that um, the piece of equipment that you have that is supposed to be measuring the winds is, is doing its job accurately and just all that stuff. Um, so you're processing that kind of on the way out. And then once you get all that sent, then you go back to just kind of taking observations until you reposition and start to come in from another direction and then you do that all over again. So that's what the weather officer is is spending most of their time in. It's a really busy period between the eye walls and, and through the eye or around the center. And then um, the rest of it, you know, you get to breathe a little bit more, um, but you're setting yourself up to do it again. And then there's variables. So let's say you're near land and you have to like half the storm is over land and you have to kind of figure out how you're going to adjust your pattern to get as much data as possible but we don't we don't fly and we don't take that data over land because there's already data over land um or sometimes it's near hispaniola or something where there's mountains so then you're dealing with mountain turbulence and and trying to be careful uh if the eye passes over land you have you can't fly into it and drop a sand on land you'll do a radar fix um you know so there's variables with different unique storms um if it's making a landfall then there's some special stuff that you're usually doing because obviously that's a big deal so yeah that's that's kind of all the stuff wow that's <laughs> you're busy 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 it's really really cool um i mean mm -hmm. I, I don't know about a lot of a lot of other people i could totally geek out on this stuff it's just <laughs> it's just there's so much to know and it, it's just like any other career field you know civilian or military it's like if you meet that if you're if you're in a complex environment and you meet that one person that says they know everything they're lying to you because there's so many variabilities. There's, there's so many things that, that nobody can know hundred percent of everything. Cause every time you, you make a crisscross through the, through the hurricane, something's different. You know, it, it's evolving. It's a, a living, breathing creature, if you will. You know, it's just one of those really cool things. I agree. Yeah. There's, you know, we never did forecasting. We were just data collectors. The hurricane center did all that, but there was definitely times we'd see a trend and be like, Hey, hurricane center, just, just in case you're not reading between the lines in our reports, like, you know, this is what we're seeing. Um, but there were times again, not to beat on Katrina too much, but they kept thinking that was going to get picked up by a trough. And so the original landfall forecast had the cone like over Florida, then Alabama, then Mississippi, then Louisiana. So we were the flight where it finally started turning. 
And, you know, so we were like, hey, we're st finally starting to catch that turn. Um, but yeah, there's so many variables um, and the storms can be tricky. So, you know, the eye walls, if there's thunderstorms in them, obviously you're trying to follow the winds and you're trying to figure out the winds are kind of um, squirrely. I don't know if anyone else uses that term, but um, yep. yes. <laughs> okay. Uh, am, I, am I following a thunderstorm wind, which is not actually the system wind? I want to make sure I'm following a system wind to get the circulation. Uh, you know, sometimes that can be hard. There's uh, sometimes the eye wall is going through a replacement cycle and you're trying to like figure out is this the eye or is that the eye? Which, what do I need to be aiming at? Um, I've been in storms where there have been tornadoes in the eye wall. And then you're like, oh, I, we're not going to go there. We have to go all the way around. Um, <laughs> yeah, there's just, there's just a lot of variables. And I think this is a very important time to tell our listeners, we don't encourage general aviation pilots to fly through hurricanes and tornadoes. And I don't think you're allowed to do that no <laughs> we had, the military has the military has special permission um to be out in that um well i mean there have been cases i do remember during i don't remember what storm it was but someone trying to like take off during a storm to get their plane out of it oh crash, sure. crashing and killing their family um was one of the sadder stories i heard and it's like trying to move your plane during a hurricane it's just not worth it. Um, right. Yeah. At that point, you just ride it out, you know? Yeah. That, that's your, your best option. All that stuff is replaceable. An airplane's replaceable. Family's not. So, I mean, yeah. Again, it's priorities. Uh, so, after you've gathered all of your information, all the stuff that has to do with the storm, you do your, your passes, you have your six hours, then you land and stuff, all your information yeah, goes out to everybody. So how does the info that you collect translate and like help the forecasters on the ground do their spaghetti models and their cones and stuff? Well, so the plane itself has a um, satellite uplink that is parceling um, as a plane is flying along data every 10 minutes and sending them a package that is the really fine tuned data, you know, taken every second with all this stuff in it, uh, winds, temperatures, pressures, all that stuff. Um, so that is, is going into the modeling. It's getting saved for ac after actions where sometimes they go back and like review a storm and do lessons learned and stuff. And, and even one of my storms, um, uh, storm from 05 that, that didn't really do as much damage as some of the other ones. So no one remembers it, but it was Emily. And when I flew it, it was a cat four but it was one of the ones that just knocked us around. And it was one that we had lightning and I believe hail in, which you don't always have in hurricanes, but that means it's more dynamic. And um, so they used all that data after the fact to be like, oh, that was really a cat five. What I, I was like, yeah, that, well, felt like a cat five. Um, but so, so there's data going out of the plane you know, very frequently. Um, and they're also using it to track us to see where we are. Not that there's frequently problems, but you know, if something happened, they'd kind of have an idea of where we were and everything else that. Um, and then the special things that we're taking, the drops on releases, the, you know, the eye wall and the eye reports and everything we're sending directly. So they have that almost directly. In fact, for the eye report, which is called the vortex message, 
So the vortex message, they have us send a draft of it because usually we don't, part of what goes in it is the eyewall data from the sawn, but the sawn can take, you know, 10 minutes to, from to fall all the way down and then process the data and whatever else. So they don't even wait until all the data is in. We send them the draft because they want to know that minimum pressure right away and those coordinates right away because that's what's going on into what they're sending out to the world. And as I said earlier, those coordinates are giving them that center point. So for all the forecasts to have an initiation point. So that's really important. So that's an example of, of like real-time data. And so we'll take those vortex messages and you will almost immediately see the hurricane center if from our last pass, for example, if that pressure is dropping and the winds are going up and that's, that's visible in our vortex data, you will almost immediately see the hurricane center take that data and upgrade the storm, for example, or downgrade, you know, could go the other direction, but we can see live time and they would even tell us, they'd be like, oh, they really, the forecasters are really interested in this one. They used your data to upgrade the storm. So um, that was the biggest thing is just using the initiation point from the coordinates so that, you know, their forecast extrapolations are as good as they can be, and then using the live data of um, things that we're finding in the track of the storm and the intensity in the storm to, to possibly go into the, the newest forecasts. Interesting. Nice. So just one last question um, about hurricane hunters. So can you give us a high and a low point that you've had while doing hurricane hunting? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, I, didn't come up I mean, for a low point, you know, everyone has boring days at the office. Um, so actually out hunting, I would say that there's invests that you've done where they're like, hey, go check this out. And you literally, it's blue skies. There's one cloud. There's sailboats going by under you. And you're like, hey, there's nothing out here. And they're like, okay, just keep checking. You're like, I've been <laughs> in a plane for six hours. Um, you know, those days are, are not exciting. Um, I guess all of the high points are when you kind of know you made a difference. So even storms that were hard, like Katrina, you know, we saw it making the turn, we saw it intensifying, we knew it was gonna be bad, but we also knew that the data that we were getting, like the fact that we were identifying that it was starting to take a shift in the track, that it was starting to really get big, things like that, um, knowing that that's gonna help people. Uh, doing landfall missions where, you know, you're taking a storm into land, so to speak, and giving that critical data, like the, like the final pass and, and that anyone's going to get from that storm. Um, things like that are just very rewarding because you know that it's going to help save lives, but hope, hopefully people are taking it seriously, but some people are going to take it seriously. And that data eventually is going to help with evacuations and, and people being able to know what they need to do and stuff like that. So um, very gratifying in that respect. Um, you know, the other, it, not a low point, but there are seasons that are just quiet, which is great for everybody else. Um, but for you, if you, you know, um, just go in for your couple of weeks and you're like, okay, nothing's happening, you know, um, or when I was pregnant and I couldn't fly and I had to watch all the planes go while I sat, sat at the desk and like 
coordinated for them, um, including my, I think that was the year that Nicole came up and I was pregnant and I was like, oh man, but um, you know, so missing out on feeling fear of missing out. Yep. Um, that's a thing. Yeah. <laughs> <It's real. laughs> yeah. So when there was a big storm, you didn't get to be a part of, um, you know, but oh, I think we all experience that to one degree or another. <laughs> yeah. So I, I do have one other question that I forgot about and I, I want to circle back to. Um, there are a lot of TV shows and things that show what people think certain jobs are like, um, including my own, that aren't always accurate. Um, and I think it was the Weather Channel that did that show Hurricane Hunters back in like 2010, 2012, something like that. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> did you find that to be the case that it was either too dramatized or was there accuracy to it? Or do you have any thoughts that you want to or can share? Uh, yeah. So what I learned during the taping of the Hurricane Hunters, uh, because I was on some of those planes, is that reality TV is almost always staged. Um, literally, they had flights where they like, oh, we missed a shot. <clears throat> the um, On the C-130, the loadmaster and the weather pallets can actually come off. Like our workstations are on pallets so that if we need to use a C-130, like a C-130 again, you can do it. Um, and I guess they needed to like dramatize a scene that was with a loadmaster, And so they unhooked the pallet and had someone shaking the pallet. Oh, come on. And we're taping it like, <laughs> so that happened once. Um, Please tell me that was in the air. No, we were okay, good. It was on the ground. Oh my God. <laughs> But again, pretending like it was in the yeah. air on a violent flight, actually just shaking the pallet. Um, what was another one? And then there were people that would really get into it and they wanted, they thought it was going to make them a star. So they'd be really dramatic in all the scenes. Like, I, I think we have a hurricane now. And I'd be like, uh, I'm the weather officer and we don't. <laughs> you know, sh we weren't talking to you. And I'm like, but we don't. So who asked me the meteorologist? <laughs> they would not they would not talk to me because I would be like they'd be like, could you say this? And I'd be like, I'm not saying that. That's not true. And <laughs> so yeah. And then Thank another you. loadmaster one time was like giving me the SON data and he's like, I think we have rapid intensification. And I'm like, we don't. There's a standard for that. We haven't met the millibars per hour. And he's like and they're like, well, could you say that? And I'm like, but we don't, we don't. It's like rapid intensification is a certain pressure drop in a certain period of time. And they're like, oh, hey, could you say that again? And I'm like, oh God. So, <laughs> yeah. so that was my life during all of the filming of that was me just shaking my head. Trying, trying to pull back on the reins of, of reality TV. You, you talked about the, the shaking of the palace. So in a previous career field, my job was loading and unloading those those pallets for for the aerial port, right? Um, I can only imagine with the loadmaster and everybody else on board that airplane shaking those darn pallets back and forth. I'm just sitting there like, uh, that's so many write ups, Air Force write ups that would be like big no nos in the in the real world. Oh, 
That's funny though. That's funny stuff. But wow. and part of why I asked is I think I knew what the answer was going to be because I've been involved in a couple of like filmings for things for like investigative discovery and a couple other things. Uh, but like they set us up in these ridiculous scenarios of like, all right, everyone circle around this table and we're going to do this briefing. I'm like, this isn't how we do this at, at all. Like, like I go tap these guys on the shoulder. We might do a briefing on like certain things, but this scenario that you're bringing up is not a thing that we do. Yeah. No. But I, I, yeah, I figured I knew what the answer was, but I thought I'd ask anyways, just in case maybe it was different because it's the weather channel, but. Again, they hated me. Literally, they hated me. Like, there was one time I was on an elevator and they were staying at the hotel and they were like, and they got back off. And um, and I'm not like a mean person, but I would just be like, I'm not playing this game. So, well, that's I, your job, you know? Because it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't safe and I wasn't going to lie yeah. about the weather and yeah, something. Well, yeah, why, why dramatize it even more than what it is? Because there's plenty of drama on weather to begin with. I mean, I mean, yeah, at the end of the day, you're still flying into a hurricane. So. <laughs> yeah, that is pretty crazy. Yeah. Yeah. So but it's my take anyway. on reality TV. <laughs> That's awesome. That, was, that is awesome. I'm, I'm really, really glad I asked that, that question now. But yeah, <laughs> I'm yeah. very glad you did. The only thing that you see of me in that whole special is like you repeatedly see the back of my head because <laughs> I wouldn't talk to them. Because that's the only shot you give them? <laughs> well, I'd be like, if you want me to tell you something, but I'm going to tell you exactly what's going on and I'm not going to like whatever. And they were yeah. like, like, oh, you're to that guy. He'll say anything. Yeah. Captain <laughs> Fun Killer over here. So do you have to go to water survival too? I just did that today. So oh, oh, this is, is what? Yeah. When I went, it was land survival was at Fairchild, and we I did water survival in Pensacola. Yeah, so the uh, so Spokane did a uh, um, they they built a brand new uh, gym or a, a rec center, if you will, and they have water survival in there. And so they oh. so they divide up emergency parachute training, and I got some other patches and some other stuff. I feel but, like it um, would be the same, not in open water. Yeah, it, it's not. It's 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 in a very controlled environment, but they uh, but they have this overhead crane now that they bring down like a, like a fake helicopter and they have these big fans that do like rotor wash. So you're legitimately getting hoisted up, you know, 50 feet in the air, holding on to your, 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 uh, your, your life support, getting drug into the uh, helicopter. And then they, then they drop you, you know, is it like five feet or whatever? Then they dunk you and you have to find your exit and all that sort of fun stuff. Get in the 20 man life raft. Yeah, we did. Yeah, all that but today. you don't have sharks. We had the no. added bonus of like, Hey, there could be a shark. Maybe not. Oh, we, uh, anyway, yeah. the point of my story <laughs> was that, um, so during my years, sometimes we had uh, parachutes on the plane. Sometimes we didn't mm -hmm. most of the time we didn't. And in uh, water survival school, they were very much like, you know, always get your parachute. If something goes wrong, always parachute out of the plane. And I was like, yeah, I don't think we, I hadn't really started flying yet. I'd maybe had a couple orientation flights, but I was like, I don't think we have parachutes. And they were like, of course you have parachutes. And I was like, mm, really don't think we do. And so it was an argument with the teacher. And, um, and I was like, no, really, I don't think so. And he's like, get parachutes and always parachute out of the plane. And I was like, well, I mean, I'm could be in a hurricane and I just feel like that's <laughs> bad. And I would rather maybe take my chances, you know, if it was like an eye wall or something, cause you're just going to get updraft, downdraft, yeah. 
you know, lightning. Get torn, to, get torn to yeah. bits. Um, I would, I feel like I would rather your, your escape hatch. Cause you know, we had plans if we had a ditch and the escape hatch and stuff is mm-hmm. what made me think of this. I'm like, I feel like I'd rather like ride out the plane and try and get away from the hurricane field and then take my chances with ditching the plane. And the teacher was like, no, don't ever do that. You always do the parachute. And I'm like, not parachuting an eye wall. And um, so I was that student. But anyway, so then the next day we were doing some of the stuff. We were on like a small aircraft carrier or something to do the parasailing and, mm-hmm. you know, our stuff, how we were doing it. And all the other instructors were out there. One of the other instructors pulled me aside and he's like, you caused a fight. I was like, how did I cause a fight? And he's like, your instructor came back after class that day where the other instructors were. And he's like, I had this student and he gave my scenario and the other instructors were, and some of the other instructors were like, wow, yeah, we'd do that too. And so I guess (laughs) there was like a fight among the instructors of what you do in a hurricane, do you parachute or do you go down with the plane? And so there was very much like for the rest of the class, like team parachute and team ditch. (laughs) And the instructors would like, tell me like, we're on team ditch with you. And I'm like, okay, (laughs) like we're all screwed either way, but okay. We're on team ditch. Oh, that's funny. Oh, that's awesome. Trevor's been causing a bit of a stir too with his instructors. Mm-hmm. I was going to say, this may come as a surprise to you, but Trevor is also that student that goes, no, you're wrong. This is how it is. Guilty. I mean, when you're right, you're right. I mean, am I right? <laughs> so we want to thank Nicole Mitchell once again for that great content that she gave us that we were able to spread across two episodes. Really interesting adventures that she's had within her career. But I also learned something else about Nicole. Um, she's a lawyer too. So not only is she a meteorologist, um, she's been with the Hurricane Hunters. She's a lawyer, and now she's running for state senate. Um, we certainly wish her all the best in those endeavors. But man, she's done a lot. So commendable in and of itself. Yes, she is very accomplished. It was really awesome having her on the podcast. And maybe if we play our cards right, we can talk nice to her and get her to come back and talk weather again with us sometime. <laughs> yeah, fall, you know when fall comes around, we'll have winter weather to talk about, and I'm sure she has plenty to say about that. There you go. All right, Jim. What have you concocted for us for this next episode? Our next episode, we're going to try something new. Ask an ATC. Um, We have enlisted the help of one of our fans of the podcast, Jack Parkin. He is an air traffic controller, and he would love to answer your questions that you have for ATC, whether it's about how the system works, a specific incident you may have had with a controller that you've got questions about, really anything ATC related. It's awesome. So if you have any questions for ATC guy, go ahead and reach out at flyingmidwestpodcast at gmail.com. Or on our Facebook page. Or the Instagram machine. We're on there too. <laughs> you know how to get a hold of us. We don't have to tell you all those ways to find us. Yeah, Just Google us. You'll find us. We're, <laughs> we're, we're on the internet, so you can find us. So it'd be really cool if we had that be kind of an interactive thing where Jack is able to answer your questions. So look forward to what that episode will bring. And if no one gives us any questions, we have our own. So don't feel like there's a lot of pressure, but we'd love to hear from you. Thank you for joining us. And until next time, see ya. See ya. See ya. Bye bye now. Bye bye. Bye bye. Okay, bye bye. Bye bye. Bye now. Bye bye. Thanks so much for joining us on the Flying Midwest Podcast. Until next time, podcast service terminated, Squawk VFR, frequency change approved.
Good day. <coughs> Did I hurt your feelings? I'm sorry. So <laughs> <laughs> All of a sudden, I'm, I'm thinking uh, Bohemian Rhapsody. Mama! Wait, yeah. The, the rabbit holes tonight are deep and plentiful. Just <laughs> tripping over them left and right. Um, so even with public safety, they do do a lot. They do do. <laughs> <laughs> He's a doo-doo. Um, Out of Kansas? Or, or, do you need a minute to gain your composure? I have no composure. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> that, those are your words. Go chill for a minute. I got to talk to my old man um, who listens to the podcast now and doesn't fall asleep. I want to die when I hear myself talk. I also want to die when I hear yourself talk. <laughs> I'm leaving this podcast. Bye. Go find another CFI willing to deal with your bullshit. Gosh, she has such a punchable face. You can put that in the bloopers. Do not keep that in the episode. Now, that okay. doesn't come with the name Trevor, right? It's just this one guy. No, it's yeah, it's just this one guy. I don't think you have a punchable face, Trevor. No, he really doesn't. Does. Huh. What do you know? I learned something new. I did too. And bacon. 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 <laughs> Speaking of bacon, let's talk about some flying uh, breakfast. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> you yes. never watched Blue's Clothes? Maddie watched it when she was a young kid. I watched I it because I had young kids. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> let me, yes, yeah, this so let me go ahead and. Let I am a small that. child. Um, in bigger and more important news, this airport is in Massachusetts. <laughs> Which is... It said Gardner, Kansas. Not in the Midwest. And my last pancake breakfast to talk about, also May 15th, 7 a.m. to 12, is going to be the exact same one that I just read, but it's a different Facebook post. Ah, <laughs> gone. You, were, you got done got right there. Well, let me rephrase that. Someone talks smartly in a manner that has something to do with this show. I am a small child. 